again, <coughs> the um, text we, we will be reading is 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may, be, he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, there are prayers that only spiritual grandmothers can lead us into. Um, thanks, Roxy. So let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll unpack this passage. Jesus, thank you for your love for the church, for the ways you gave yourself up a body like this. We claim that for the ways your body is made up of individual parts like ourselves. We claim that for the a global church. You're beautiful and glorious. Uh, we ask for your help now by your spirit. Uh, teach us, shape us. Encourage us, correct us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Hey, let's play a little uh, word association game. Don't say it out loud, but um, what comes to your mind when I say male elders? Just hold for a second. Go a little farther. Male elders. What comes to your mind? Okay, again, not out loud, but... Is it mostly positive or is it mostly concerning or questions or maybe negative? Should you answer that question for yourself? I think all of us have an image in our minds. So when we come to a text like this, I just want to acknowledge we come from somewhere. You have a story individually. Maybe it's your very first time into a church and so you're here now going like seriously, this power grab of a church trying to talk about leadership, or maybe there's faces, there's stories, there's conversations, there's other places that you've been that you have images. It could be a really positive view. You could have been in a healthy church with healthy Christ-like leadership, but most of us have some sort of jagged edge when it comes to how we understand leadership and how to understand even leadership in the church. So even like the very first verse of this in chapter 3, verse 1 of the book of First Timothy where he says, this saying is trustworthy. Like, pay attention, this is a good idea. 
anyone aspiring to the office of overseer or elder desires a noble task. And you might look at that and say, no way. Maybe, maybe for two directions. Maybe you're like, that sounds like a terrible job. Like who would want to do that? None taken, none taken. But in that space, you may go like, hey, the church has such low brand equity. It's such a challenge. It's this big mess. No way would I ever want to be in a space where I was asked to lead the church. Or maybe it comes from another direction where you can only read a text like this through our current cultural lens of abusive power and narcissism in spaces where people have asserted their power that's been really harmful to others. So either way, wherever your experience is, I think we come to a passage like this and we just got a lot of questions. So up front, it's super important to say we've been formed by a world that has an idea of leadership that Jesus constantly pushes against. If you're going through this reading guide that we put out in front of you, there's passages each week that kind of help get us ready for the service. It's on our website if you don't have one already. There's a couple of, of hard copies out in the back. So I would love for you to grab this. We are um, going through these ideas of leadership, and we put a couple of passages this week that are from the mouth of Jesus. One is in Mark chapter 10. Jesus saying, hey, if you want to be great, you have to be a servant. If you want to be first, you have to be last. And he's saying that in the context of his followers grabbing for power, asking for positions to sit on his right and left. They're essentially asking, in your kingdom, which one of us is going to be most important? It's the middle school lunchroom question that all of us still carry into adulthood. Where do I rank? How do I fit? Where am I going to find my space in this community? And in that spot, Jesus says, oh, you think about this all wrong. You think about it like the world thinks about it. Instead, in the kingdom of God, things are upside down. Those who serve are the ones who are esteemed. Those who are last are first. And then he says, because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and then he punchlines it this way and give his life as a ransom for many. So when Jesus speaks of leadership, he speaks of sacrifice, of literally dying to himself. And he calls men and women throughout the scriptures to that kind of understanding of leadership. Another important passage is in John 13. It's coming down to the last couple of days of Jesus' life before he'll go to the cross. And he gathers his disciples in the upper room and he begins to instruct them and the way he does that is he takes off his outer garment puts a towel around his waist grabs a bucket a wash basin and a towel and begins one by one to go to his disciples and wash their feet they're really put off by this it's super uncomfortable for them they have lots of questions about this it's never a question of who's in charge they're not wondering, oh, Jesus, now I guess I'm in charge if you're washing my feet. That's never a question they ask, but they don't know what to do with this kind of leadership. And then Jesus says, hey, what I have done for you is to be an example for you of how you should lead and serve others. So I want to acknowledge we come into a series about the church, and now as we come into a sermon about leadership in the church, with lots of questions and thoughts and concerns, all the more reason to set our gaze upon Jesus, who can reorient our hearts, can heal us, can correct us, can get us into a space where we can actually follow what his heart is for us when it comes to the church. So we've said we kind of have a goal of like, what is the church in general? We want to talk about that. And then we want to talk about what it means to be in the church as leaders, and then how men and women actually lead together. Even the diagram on the reading guide this little wash basin and tower we're saying this is about the structure of the church 
and the servants of the church. So I'm trying to help us as a community think about how we move forward. Because here's the deal. Every church has elders. Whether you recognize them as elders or not, whether you hold them accountable, whether you elect them formally, whether you train them and whether they're qualified, every church has elders. You might say the elder is just the lead pastor. It's a one elder model. And we have an elder, he's called the lead pastor. And we pay him to do those things. And that's our our model. It's not an unbiblical model, but every church has elders. Maybe you'd say, well, it's not just the pastor, it's the entire staff. We look to the staff to be the ones who lead and guide us. Maybe in some contexts it's the deacons. The deacons are in a space where not as these servant leaders, but they're actually asked to lead and guide and direct the affairs of the church. And in most churches, there's a group that's unidentified formally, but very identified relationally. Normally they've been there for a long time. Normally they have a little bit of cash in their pockets. And they have opinions that shape and drive the church. Every church has elders. As we think about our future going forward, what we desire is uh, to move towards what the scriptures would have for us of a plurality of elders, qualified men who would lead our body spiritually the way Jesus promised and showed and modeled service leadership to his people. And in that space, they partner with deacons. There's lots of questions about how it functions with men and women together. And that's where we're aiming as a church, asking how do we Go forward, and I just want you to hear like the leadership of our church has a desire to share, has a desire to decentralize power, has a desire to raise up spiritual leaders inside our body. We think that would make us most healthy. So, we started last week in 1 Corinthians 12 this image of the body. It's a fascinating portrait of the church. Christ is the head, there is no other head, He is the chief elder, He's the chief shepherd. 1 Peter 5 says he's the one who calls the shots. He will always be the lead pastor of our church, period. And he gives instructions through his apostles and in teaching about how the church should move forward. And the image of a body then has these interdependent, connected parts. Individual, they're diverse, and yet they function together. No one part being more important than another is some of the teaching in there. Even upside down understanding of priority we saw last week where what we might see as the weaker parts or the, the most modest parts, they get treated with the most honor, this upside down value of the kingdom. And yet what's happening in that space is a beautiful portrait for us of diversity and unity. It gives us permission to talk about different kinds of roles in the body, even leadership roles and responsibilities without making a statement of value or worth. It's just simply beautiful the way he lays it out for us. So, so for the record, I think Jesus's church is beautiful. I think it's beautiful. I think his plan is beautiful. I think him decentralizing power through the body is beautiful. I think him remaining the head and the cornerstone and the groom is beautiful. I think him gathering a diverse group of people and through his spirit giving them gifts to carry out his mission in the world is beautiful. So to the degree that we haven't experienced the church as beautiful, I don't think it's the scriptures. I think it's us. Maybe our misunderstanding of scriptures, but more likely our misapplication of the scriptures. And so part of my goal here is to help us kind of heal and refocus and have confidence to move forward. Because if his church is beautiful in the way he's designed it to have leadership through God's saving grace and filling you with his spirit, is a beautiful reality. And what God has for us is to live into this functioning body of Christ together. 
could be beautiful. So let's hear his word and ask for him to shape and help us. Let me just say two qualifying things as we jump in. One is there are lots of models of churches. Lots of people have biblical models and they look quite a bit different. And so what's amazing to me is the way the scriptures are written brilliantly. They have often these profound but generic principles about how to lead and serve. So that if you're in 8th century rural Mongolia, it totally works. And if you're in 21st century metropolitan Kansas City, it totally works. God in his brilliant design through the corridors of history knew that there would be different cultures and communities and different ways that things were happening. There would be different challenges. There would be different sizes. There would be different even backgrounds to how you understand the family. All of that was going to change based on where you lived and what time you were in. So he gave us beautiful, brilliant, even if generic principles. So my goal from here on the pulpit is to stay at that principle level. So we're not this morning going to talk about how many elders and should they be lay or vocational and should they rotate and what's their job with the deacons and how do they function with our leadership team. All of that's super, super important. And this is maybe a teaser to invite you to our members meeting on October 15th. And then all these Q&As that are listed on the back of this reading guide, like we want to answer those. All those are super, super important. But when I stand in this space, I'm trying my best to do a thus saith the Lord, not a here's what we're thinking about how we might try and pull off. We're going to do some strategy conversations that really matter to think about even the context of our local church. We have the opportunity to dream together about what makes the most sense for us. And it will match these larger, beautiful, biblical principles. So invite you to these members meetings. Even if you're not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus, you wouldn't call this place home. Come October 15th and hear some more. And then come to these Q&As that we have and come on December to hear a little bit more. The details really matter, but we won't discuss them primarily from here. I think that will actually serve us. And then second, a big part of God's design is men and women leading and serving together. So rather than trying to squeeze that into a couple of minutes this morning, we're going to take a whole sermon next week to talk about that. And I realize for many of you, that is your defining question. You're kind of fine with the idea of elders. Sure, Chris, okay, every church has elders. I got it. But what about women being elders? And if they're not elders, why are they not elders? And if they're not elders, then what does it mean for them to actually lead and serve the way we see them functioning in the scriptures? So I want to just set aside an entire week to that next week. And again, some of those conversations and those members meetings and Q&As will be places for us to flesh that out. Because again, God's design for his church is beautiful. For men and women to lead and serve together as mothers and fathers in the church is a beautiful plan. And women don't have to be men to be able to lead and serve. And God needs both. He's designed both men and women, mothers and fathers, to lead the family together. So, so there's a lot there. Uh, tomorrow, a document drops uh, on this QR code that's in this little thing that will be uh, uh, my best attempt for eight or nine pages to explain what I think the survey of Scripture shows about men and women serving together. And what you'll see is a beautiful and robust example of partnership and mutuality. It's a beautiful, beautiful portrait when you stand back and look at the entire panoramic view of Scripture. So, so lunchtime tomorrow. I'm still working on some edits. We wrote a document a few months ago, but it wasn't like for public consumption. It was like a mind dump. So now I'm going back through and going like, does that even grammatically make sense? And I'm working on that. So lunch tomorrow will be my commitment to you. You'll see that document. That will give us some space coming into next week. Okay, those are lots of qualifiers. Here's where I want to go this morning. I want to talk about what are the qualifications to lead in the church and then how these things function together through their different roles. And then what does it look like for us to kind of 
mutually engaged together. So we'll start with the qualifications, which is where this text begins. As I read through this, I want you just to kind of see the portrait. I want you to feel the kind of leaders he's talking about. Even as he says, if you aspire to be an overseer, you aspire a good thing. And then he goes right in chapter 3, verse 2 to say, hey, this leader must be above reproach. So this is not just like a neat idea or a position of authority. This is somebody who actually stands in a space where they give an account and they have to live lives that are holy and above reproach in the community and in the church. It's fascinating to me when I read pastors' works throughout history. There's often a chapter or a section in instruction to pastors that has a a chapter on the necessary nature of conversion for pastors. (laughs) You're like, isn't that just a given? You're like, no, because our community is not the only community that has grasped for power. And there's been times where to stand in pulpits like this was a prestigious space in the community. And so you could be a lawyer or a doctor or you could be in the clergy. And so there were people who pursued academic degrees to lead the church with prestige. So you have guys like Spurgeon and Richard Baxter saying, hey, before we talk about calling, we have to make sure these guys are actually Christians. You have to actually live above Reproach. It's not simply about some sort of power grab. So with that in mind, then if a, an overseer must be above reproach, maybe as a summary sentence, you just hear this portrait. It's stuff that you can observe, even if it's hard to quantify. Like you're wondering, like, what does it even mean to be generous or to lead your family well or to have self-control? How would you put that on a map or measure that? You may not be able to measure it, but I think you can observe it. Listen to this portrait of who he says should be leading this church. An overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And the Titus passage says, with kids that are faithful, For if someone doesn't know how to manage their own household, then how can they care for the church of God? He must not be a recent convert, and he must not become puffed up, or so he doesn't become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Okay, it would be just like God to start where the Bible normally starts, which is with the heart. With the exception of able to teach, none of those are competencies All of those are characters. Did you hear kind of the description? Did you hear this person who's patient and kind and who doesn't get riled up, who you can have trouble with and you can come at them with questions and they don't fire back in anger? It's a description really of like a stable dad who has teenage kids or little kids and they're struggling in that space, but they don't lose their cool with their kids. It's somebody who can be in spaces that are hot and not get overwhelmed. Somebody who extends their life to somebody else who sees the value of people so they treat them with dignity and they open up their lives in ways they're willing to serve and sacrifice. It's just like God to start with the heart when he describes these overseers. And what's also crazy is it's not that remarkable of a list. In fact, most of the things you see there are given to commands to Christians throughout the scriptures. There's, there's very little unique, maybe even just robust than that so so what you have here is a description that's fairly unremarkable and yet really compelling so just go back to that image you had in your mind of male elders when I threw it out at the beginning I wonder if it matches that list 
And isn't it comforting to know that what God is asking of his leaders is this. This is what qualifies a person. Not their business acumen, not their success in the world, not how gregarious they are, not how well-spoken they are. What matters is their heart and their integrity and their character. So you have this observable, even if hard to quantify, list of characteristics that God calls his people to. I think if elders and leaders and pastors lived into this list, much of our tension or unease or even pain would move to the background. These are stable dads who you can follow in a way that actually would bring about flourishing and health because following after Jesus, they're giving their lives away. They're sacrificing and asking God to bless at even their own expense of their service to the people around them. So much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. The deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Again, a very similar list that goes after the heart. God's after the character of his leaders because it shapes the character of the church. And though elders and deacons have some differences in what the rest of the scriptures would call them to, you see a very similar list here that what qualifies someone to lead in the church is what God's doing inside their heart. Let me just address one question in this thing. There's this question in verse 11 of, is this deacons' wives likewise must be dignified? Or again, you heard me say as I walked through it, and if you're looking at the ESV, you might see a little footnote there that says this could be translated not just wives but women likewise it's the same greek word the word gune can be translated women or wives so one way you read it is an extra qualifier for the deacons to have wives that are also upstanding that's one way to read that that's an orthodox way it's grammatically accurate it's faithful to the text but another way to read that is to see it as a space for women to also be deacons which is how our church has traditionally understood that text so then it would read, all right, here's the qualifiers for the men deacons, and then we have women deacons, likewise, they must be dignified, not slanderers. They, they need to be in spaces where they're sober-minded and faithful in all things. Our church has understood this text to say women can and should be deacons, and praise God, we have an amazing group of women that have led here for a really, 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 really long time. And I, I think in that space, both the idea that it matches what the rest of the scriptures say. You see women deacons other places. So like in Romans 16, you see a woman called a deacon. And the word deacon just means servant. So Jesus is called a deacon as well. So is the Apostle Paul. We're all called to be, to be servants in that space. So there's a lowercase d use of that word. But there's also a capital D kind of role that seems to get applied to women, And it just, in my mind, doesn't make a lot of sense that if the elders are the ones who are supposed to be leading and then the deacons are, are serving to kind of implement the vision of the church, that you would have a stricter requirement for the deacons rather than the elders just seems a little bit confusing. So I wouldn't say that then is an unbiblical way to engage that or interpret. There are communities and traditions that see this as the deacons' wives. But I think it's beautiful to understand this mutuality to see servants working together both as men and women, even little things like you know, this idea of likewise or in the same way, it just feels like it's saying this is what the women should do 
as well. We can talk more about that if you like. I realize that's not a small thing. Whole denominations have been formed out of that. Lots of interesting conversations have happened out of that. But just wanted you to know as we hit that text, that's the way our church understands that passage to welcome women into this space of significant leadership in the life of our church. It's also one of the reasons why we see the office of elder reserved for men because you don't see that kind of qualifier or that provision. You never see a female called an elder in the scriptures. But what you do see though is powerful women leading throughout the scriptures. So that's a little teaser for next week if you want to come back and we'll talk about that uh, in ways that I'm sure won't cause any tension or any confusion at all. I'll be able to wrap it up very, very easily. Okay, but all joking aside, what I want you to see there in the qualifications is that God is going where he always goes, which is to the heart of his leaders. And then remember this idea here in verse uh, 13, what is caput here? For those who serve well as deacons, they gain a good understanding, or gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And maybe you got tripped up there. I did actually for a while this week. I was like, wait a second, is that the opposite of what we've been saying? That you shouldn't actually want to be esteemed for your leadership? You should actually just want to serve? And what we see in that space there is the good standing, those who are esteemed are the ones Jesus says are last. Work hard to get your name on that cross, although I'm super thankful for the men and women there. I think it means the model of Jesus is to lay down your life so that you can actually pursue this beautiful understanding of sacrifice in the church to see the church be built up. Those are the qualifications of elders and deacons. It goes at character and in spaces where there's this beautiful portrait of God's people following after Jesus, essentially, in, in two different kinds of roles. And so I think even like if you're a uh, maybe Jim Collins fan, this is a get the right kind of person on the bus before you understand even what they're supposed to functionally do. The clearest teaching is about the kind of person, not necessarily the specific exact functions, which I think is instructive for us. But, but the Bible does speak to what they do. And so I actually have a slide here to think about the roles between elders and deacons. Maybe we can see it this way. Elders are responsible for the why of the mission of the church. Like, why do we actually do what we do? And I should just make sure. Oh, nice. Good. Okay. Uh, the why of the church is what the elders are aimed at. And I have like Simon Sinek in my mind of like the why being like, what is the purpose? What's the main goal? What's the thing that drives all this? The elders are charged through teaching, through leading, through caring, through through modeling, through protecting the doctrine to establish and make sure that why is in line with God's word. And then in a lot of ways what we see in scripture is that the deacons are responsible for the how. How do we live that out? If that's where we're going, if that's what God's called us to, then how do we live this out as a community? So Acts chapter 6 would be a really important passage for us to understand deacons actually carrying out the why. There's a need in the community. You maybe read it this week if you're in the reading guide. Have I plugged the reading guide enough to encourage you to grab one of those? But in Acts chapter 6, what you see there is this mutuality between the, the deacons that are being appointed for the very first time and the leaders of the church. They think about the needs. They see the needs together. And the, the apostles say, yes, this is a need we should meet. And then because there's in the middle, like, what would we do to help carry this out? What would the structures look like? What would the, the focus be for us to kind of engage in that space? And so you might think about like, like elders are the why, deacons, are, we share a lot of that together. A Venn diagram teaches us that there's not there's no why with the deacons or there's no how with the elders. There is some overlap for sure, but if you're looking for just like handholds of what the actual roles are, 
I think that would be a way to think about it. So, so when it comes to the why of elders, when you survey the scriptures, which again are in that reading guide, we try to put all of them in front of you. As we as the elder advisory team went through all those passages, we've maybe come up with like 25 different commands to elders. Put them on this huge chart and we talk through what's essential for the elders. We only see elders doing this. What's shared by lots of people. What's primarily done by elders, but we also see other people do. We did this huge graph and chart and we came up with kind of five focuses for elders. And it will sound a lot like my job. It will sound a lot like my job description. Essentially what we're asking is to multiply my role into the lay leaders in the life of our church. So you see a command to teach. You see a command to protect and guard the doctrine. It's a family. It's a flock. Protect it from false teaching, from ferocious wolves, even from lies inside the community from division. You see a call to lead, to oversee, to actually direct, to actually move in spaces where the church is being told this is where God is taking us. And then you see a call and a command to care, to come alongside, to give your life away, to to lead with your heart and welcome people into your life and sacrifice for their sake, to care for them. And then you see a command to be examples to the flock. So I won't reference all those because it'll be like a good Easter egg hunt from the reading guide for you. But that's how we understand the role of an elder. It's what the elders are designed to do and called to do. And again, in a lot of ways, that is my job. This is not me like being lazy or just like not wanting to do it. It's me believing it's more beautiful to share. 40 or 50 of us, that made a ton of sense and worked super well. Now it's a little bit challenging. So we're trying to be creative with how do we carry that same heart in ways that we maybe group ourselves around areas of the city. But the idea still is that the deacons are aimed at engaging with the body to functionally and practically meet the needs of the people. Not that elders don't do that or the staff don't do that, but there's this beautiful call to lay leaders in the body, ones of us to engage in that space together. And then we also see an expression of our leadership teams. Again, we share some of this why and what and how, and so all of our leadership teams, our our personnel team and property team, our finance team, our hospitality team, our outward-facing ministries team, which is being featured Today, our men's and women's discipleship team, and we're trying to add a benevolence team and an international missions team. Those teams serve a deacon kind of function where we say, hey, here's the direction that we're going, and then release our deacons to think creatively through strategies to help accomplish those goals. It's a beautiful, even if somewhat cumbersome and inefficient model to have lots of people shaping the life of our church, but that's the way the deacons are called to engage. And then they relate mutually. So, so there's another slide with just an arrow going back and forth. What I want you to understand here is this is not tipped on purpose where the why is on top and the how is on bottom. I have it horizontal for a reason because the image of the body of Christ, there's only one who's on the top. There's only one head of the church, and that's Jesus. And then he's given these different body parts to function together. And so we often share and carry mutually concerns and burdens so the way we lead and serve here in so many ways is collaborative and it is slow and it is clunky and it is beautiful to be in a meeting where people see things very differently than I do and help me see the church through their eyes so that we have this rounded view of how we relate to each other again act six becomes this model where the need is brought to the leaders and they say, yeah, you, they're the ones who saw it first. They're the ones who engaged it, right? That they brought this concern and need. It's not that these guys sit on high and they're the ones who know everything. There's a model of leadership that says leaders don't ask people what they need. They tell them what they need. I'm like, man, I don't know. 
If you've read that book, I don't know, maybe we could talk about it over coffee, but that doesn't feel like the way Jesus is calling us to lead. I think leaders actually ask, hey, where are we? What do you see? And not aimlessly or spinelessly, again, teach and protect and guard the doctrine. There's this aiming at what God's called us to, but, but it should be mutual. There's a, a way with the elders and deacons and the staff functioning together. The desire would be that we maintain the mutuality that we currently have and that we see throughout the scriptures. So just a couple of thoughts, and I need to go fast here. Uh, let me give you just a few. I'm going to go really fast just to entice you to come to the members meeting. I think a plurality of leaders helps us be safer. It doesn't solve all of our problems. There's dysfunctional elder models. There's dysfunctional congregational models. There's all kinds of dysfunction in every church that you're going to be a part of. But we will maintain a congregational rule, which means the final authority rests with the congregation. The elders will bring recommendations to the church, which is currently what we do now. That's the way that I lead. I bring recommendations and our church votes. But instead of like me being at the top of that, bringing these things to people, to have a plurality would help us with our blind spots and spaces where we don't see things very clearly. Every church takes on the personality of its leaders. And it would be safer for us to have a more diverse leadership community shaping where we're going. That would be my, my desire and, and my heart. I think having non-staff elders primarily leading here would be really healthy for us. To embed in our body the leadership of the church I think would be really beautiful. That way if I get hit by a bus or I get fired or I die, or I move, the vision of the church doesn't stop with me. It's embedded in the lives of, of our leaders here. And it would help us with the often fatal flaw in our church of the us-them mentality where you see there's uh, the staff and the people. To have lay elders would bring those together, and it would just be, it would be us together leading and shaping the church. These are things that I have in my heart. I have seven more on these notes that I'm going to skip uh, come to the members meeting and it will help you. Let me close with this kind of illustration. When I think about this and I think about the role that I have and trying to multiply that out with lay leaders and next week we'll talk about how we multiply women's roles with our, our lay leaders. I think it's going to be a beautiful model for us to move forward. I think about a choir. Not because I sing very good but because I think about a choir. So, so just imagine we're a choir together. Someone's got to pick the song. But the leader probably shouldn't just pick it in a vacuum, right? Should probably ask, hey, what are you guys feeling? What are you excited about? What songs have you heard about? We together kind of think through something. And somebody says, okay, here's the song we're going to sing. And then somebody has to blow that pitch pipe, if it's an acapella choir, which this would be an amazing acapella choir. Somebody has to blow that pitch pipe to get us all on tune, right? That's what I think the elders functionally do. They help to decide the song, and then they go, <laughs> which that was so compelling. You think I have something in my hand, but no, it's just, just me. They blow that tune so everyone can hear, and then everyone can sing their parts. Not uniformly the way the elders sing, but you can sing based on how you're wired, how you, you sing, but not in any key you want, any song you want. Here's the song. Here's the pitch. Here's where God's leading us. Now, body, let's engage together and make something beautiful. When you think about leadership in the church, that's what I think the scriptures are calling us to. I think it will be potent. I think it will be complicated. We'll have to repent a ton. I think it will have lots of jagged edges to it. But I think it will get us in a space where there's more to share going forward. So that's my heart for us. And here's the beautiful thing. This little choir that we gather to sing, it's a redemption song that we're singing. 
We're not just trying to run a church. We're not just trying to organize a church and get a budget going and do stuff. This is about redemption. It's about proclaiming hope and pushing back darkness and pursuing transformation together. So the song we're singing is a a Jesus song. He designed his church to have somebody say, here's where we're going. And then we get to follow Jesus together that direction. I want you to have that taste in your mouth as we get ready for our final sermon on this next week because it will actually help us find some footing and foundation as we take communion together. We take communion every week as a reminder this whole thing is about Jesus. It's his song. It's his church. It's his leaders. It's his body. This whole thing is his. So we stop and say, oh, the God who's at the center of this died in our place to make a way for us to be redeemed and forgiven and set free. So we take communion as a representation of our faith. If you're following Jesus, if you've actually trusted him, if you're singing this redemption song, even if it's currently out of tune or you're not sure what the words are, if you're trusting in Jesus, I want to invite you to come and take communion. We tear a piece of the bread off and we dip in the cup. There'll be servers at all the aisles and a gluten-free station here in the middle. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I invite you to stay in your seat and pray. There's prayers in the back of your worship guide that will give you some examples of how to cry out to God or ask questions of God or engage with Him during this time. And for everybody in the room, Christian, non-Christian, wherever you are, there's folks in the back of the uh, uh, hallway who would love to pray with you and pray for you. So as we're taking communion, we don't do it in a very organized way, so you can sneak out totally and have somebody pray with you or pray for you while we're taking communion, and then we'll sing together. Let me pray for us now, and then we'll take communion and we'll sing. Jesus, thank you for who you are and for what you've done. Would you help us now in this space trust you, follow you? I pray for the questions we have. This was a fast flyover, so would you give us grace to kind of hold on to your word and that the center of your word is the story of you redeeming us by your blood. That is the main idea. We can disagree about leadership structures, but, but you are the thing that actually saves and rescues and orients our hearts. So we worship you now. We say thank you for your broken body and shed blood. Fill this room with joy and faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, come when you're ready.